0: All right. Would you join me in prayer, Father, as we come to this time in our service, Lord, where we get to open up Your Word and uh, and study it, Father? We we just praise You for who You are, for what You've done in our lives, Father. We thank You for just our relationships with one another that we get to um, we get to walk through this life uh, together, and we get to. Learn what it means to be followers of Jesus together. We get to lean on one another. We get to help one another. Um, we get to study your word together and, and learn from one another as we do that. And we, and we just praise you for those blessings in life, Father. Um, Lord, I just ask that, uh, that our hearts would be tuned in to, to you and to your word um, today. Father, uh, help us to come to your word with expectant hearts Lord, expecting You to work in us and through us. Father, help us to expect You to convict us of sin. Help us to expect You to work salvation in people's hearts and lives. Help us to expect You to encourage us and to challenge us, to exhort us to live for Your glory and honor and praise. Uh, Father, we expect You to do mighty things through Your Word, for it is it is living and it is abiding and it is at work Here in this place today. Father, we praise you for your word. We praise you for your Holy Spirit that teaches us spiritual truths from your word, and we ask that you would be honored and glorified through all that is said and done in this time of the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to speak to you today about an exile's new identity centered on the cornerstone. 1 Peter, chapter, that should be 2. Uh, I apologize for that. That is my fault. First Peter chapter two, verses four through eight. First Peter two, verses four through eight. Do you like to watch movies? You might like to watch movies, maybe a little bit. You probably got different kinds of movies that you like. Um, thankfully, me and my wife like some of the same kinds of movies, but then others um, we disagree on, and so uh, we. I watch a movie occasionally without her because she doesn't like that kind of movie. And then I suffer through movies with her um, on other occasions. Um, probably get in trouble for that later. But that's just kind of how it works. But I've noticed something in in, in most movies. Uh, there, there's, there's always, of course, there's the bad guy and the good guy kind of plot in most movies. There's always some kind of problem that needs to be overcome but often, no, no matter really the, the, the type of movie, the genre of movie uh, or story it is, one, one thing that we often see in movies and something that makes a story interesting and, and keeps our attention is, is we see a, a character, sometimes more than one character, but at least one character, at the beginning of the movie and throughout a good portion of that story, Not really know who she is or not really know who he is. That person seems kind of lost, seems kind of to be wandering around maybe aimlessly. Maybe they're doing things, but they're they're not on the right path in life. But it kind of comes down to this question of that character asking himself or herself, who am I? What what is my identity? And as the story unfolds and the drama unfolds, that person begins to understand who he is or who she is. And so that by the end of the movie, um, whether it's stated point blank or not, we could we could at least assume that person now understands who he is. That person could say, I know who I am now. And then that movie ends on a positive note. With us assuming then that that person now is no longer wandering around aimlessly in life, but is living on purpose, has a a meaning to their life, and is living and going to live a happy and fulfilled life. Uh, And uh, that's kind of how the story ends. Would you agree with me? A lot of stories do center around that, this central character trying to figure out who he or she is. And that's an important thing in life. It's important for us to know who we are. If not, we're going to wander around aimlessly. We're going to end up on the wrong path. We're not going to live a life of meaning and purpose and fulfillment. The same is very true for us as followers of Jesus. If we are going to fulfill our purpose as we live in this world, we have to know who we are. We have to be confident in our identity and Peter knows that as he's writing this letter and he knows that the people that he's writing to because of the struggles and trials that they're going to, they're probably having some sort of identity crisis in their lives. And so while he has reminded them already of the beautiful blessing of salvation that they have, that is theirs and all that God has done for them there in chapter one, verses three through twelve. And he's gone ahead and called them to this standard of living that that elect exiles have been called to obedient lives lived in response to the great salvation that we have been given. And he talked about that obedience and the way we're supposed to live in uh, chapter one, verse 13 through chapter two, verse three. Now he turns his attention to who these believers, who these elect exiles are, and he's going to remind them. Of their identity. Remember, there's a purpose behind it because they are supposed to live in a particular way for the glory of God. He wants them to know who they are. And I think God wants us to know who we are. Now, this passage, this identity passage really begins in chapter two, verse four and goes all the way through verse 10. And so I want to read all of those verses this morning. But then we're going to focus on verses 4 through 8 this week and next week. We'll pick up those last two verses, verses 9 through 10. Here is God's word. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture... who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the word of God. As Peter makes his way through this letter as he's writing to these elect exiles, these people who have been chosen to belong to God, but have been chosen to be set apart from the ways of this world. He's reminded them of their salvation. He's called them to a particular way of life. And now he reminds them and instructs them in their identity. And their identity ultimately is summed up in none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. As we're going to see in this passage, he is a stone and he is the cornerstone and he is to be the cornerstone of our lives. We could say this about these verses, we could say these verses teach us that believing in Jesus results in a new identity centered on Jesus, which joins us to one another as the people of Jesus and leads us to live for the glory of Jesus. I know that's a lot. This kind of wordy, but that's what Peter is getting across here to his readers and what God is teaching us here in this passage. And we're going to take two weeks to unpack all of what we find here in verses four through ten. But believing in Jesus results in a brand new identity. We have to realize that who we are now after believing in Christ is not who we were before we had trusted in Christ. And that new identity centers upon Jesus Christ, on him and him alone. But it's not just about us and our relationship to Jesus. When we trust in Christ and our identity is now in Christ and centered on him, we have now been joined to other believers in Christ. We even talked about this last week as we saw the call to love one another earnestly. Our identity is, is found in Christ, but we also see that we are identified with the people of Jesus and all of that then leads us to live our lives in obedience to Christ for the glory of this one in whom we find our identity. I want to share with you four truths about our new identity as elect exiles. Number 1 is this: Our new identity is inseparably linked to the person of Jesus. Our new identity is inseparably linked to the person of Jesus. We see them in verse four and really flowing into verse five and in verse six and seven and eight. We really see this throughout the whole passage. But I want you to notice how at the beginning of this call to remember who we are, Peter fixes the attention upon Jesus Christ because our new identity is inseparably linked to the person of Jesus. Notice that he says, as you come to him, Together, we are to come to Jesus and we don't just come to him once. But notice the tense as you come to him, he's talking to people who have already believed in Jesus. And now he's telling them to continually come to Christ. We come to him initially for salvation. That moment where we're convicted of our sins, God draws us by his Holy Spirit to believe in what Jesus has done on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. And we trust in him. We come to Christ there in that moment of salvation, but we don't stop coming to Jesus. That's not the only time in our lives that we're to come to Christ. In fact, we're to come to Him every moment of every day. Peter says that these elect exiles, these are believers, he says, as you come to Him. He's assuming that they're going to come to Jesus over and over and over and over in their lives. Our identity is linked And it can't be separated from Jesus Christ. We don't just need him for our initial salvation. We need him as we grow up into salvation, which takes us right back to the previous couple of verses. Remember how Peter ended the last section. He said like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk. And we said that was conforming our lives to the standard of living that he has called us to long to live in that way. That by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. And then he follows right after that with as you come to him. How is it that we grow up into salvation? It's by coming to Jesus over and over and over. Why Jesus? Why him? Peter says that he is a living stone. Rejected by men. Well, that's an interesting thing to say. Peter is calling the elect exiles to come to Jesus. And then he describes Jesus as rejected by people. Now, we have to remember who Peter is writing to. He's writing to the elect exiles who are undergoing lots of suffering in their lives. He is writing to people who are undergoing suffering because... They have linked their lives to Jesus. And now he's telling them to keep coming to Jesus. And by the way, Jesus was rejected. How in the world is that encouraging? Peter, you want us to keep coming to Jesus and we're experiencing rejection and all? You're just telling us that Jesus was rejected? Yes. In fact, that is encouraging for believers. When was Jesus rejected? How was Jesus rejected? Why was Jesus rejected? He was rejected for the forgiveness of our sins when He hung on the cross and He bore the full payment of our sin so that we could belong to God forever. So that we could be rescued from the ways of this world. It is encouraging to know that Jesus, this living stone, and we'll talk about that phrase in a second, has been rejected because Peter's assuming his readers know that Jesus was rejected on their behalf. say, so, well, but Peter, I'm still rejected. Yes. But notice the difference in the rejection Jesus suffered and the rejection we suffered. While Jesus was rejected by people, ultimately, as He hung on the cross, He was rejected by His Father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the rejection that we experience, like Jesus, is a rejection by this world. But unlike Jesus, we'll never be rejected by our Heavenly Father. The rejection that Jesus experienced is good news. It's the good news of salvation. But it's not just that Jesus was rejected. What does Peter call Jesus? He calls him a living stone. Not a stone that once was alive, but a stone that is living. So Jesus was rejected, which makes us think of his death. And yet at the same time, he is a living stone. How does that happen? Well, Jesus didn't stay dead. Jesus rose up from the grave and Peter actually connects Jesus being a stone and a cornerstone with his resurrection in Acts chapter four. But we'll wait to go there for just a few minutes. We come to Jesus. Why? Because he is a living, resurrected stone who once was rejected so that we could have life. But it says in the sight of God, he is chosen and precious. In other words, he is God's appointed means of salvation. And so we come to him over and over Our identity is fixed and focused on Christ. Together we come to Him. Together we are treated like Him. His status is our status. His rejection by the world means we will be rejected by the world. But His status as chosen and precious in the sight of God also gets transferred to us, Christian. We get to be chosen and precious in the sight of God. Peter's going to get to that in verses 6. Seven, I don't know where you find your identity. I don't know how you would answer the question, who are you? But Christian, your identity is linked to Jesus. here's, Here's something that separates what we believe as Christians from any other belief in the world. Our identity and what we believe is linked to a person. It's based on a relationship with Jesus. Our identity ultimately isn't linked to a a set of rules. A way of living. Our identity ultimately isn't linked even to to a belief system. Though we have a system of belief It's called Christianity. Our identity ultimately isn't linked and I'm going to be careful when I say this, because I don't want to take away anything from the place of God's word in our lives. But our, our identity isn't ultimately linked to a book. As important as God's word is, and we talked about that last week, and it's a living and abiding word of God. But ultimately, our identity is linked to the person of Jesus. And so if your Christianity is simply summed up by trying to follow a set of rules... If your identity as a Christian is simply summed up by some kind of dutiful obedience to read God's word and 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 there's no relationship that's being fostered between you and your savior then you're missing out on the beauty of what it means to be an elect exile, of what it means to be a follower of Christ, that we get to live in relationship with none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Our identity is linked to a person. And so as we come and gather as the church, as we read God's Word and study it, the goal isn't just to fill our minds with information. The goal isn't just... A life where we try to do the right thing and not do the right thing. We really don't know why we're doing it and it becomes just going through the motions. The goal of our lives as we study about Christ, as we learn about Christ, as we come to Him over and over, is to come to a Him. To come to a person. To foster our relationship with Jesus. and we realize that our identity is inextricably linked to Jesus, then our goal will be to grow to know and love Jesus more and more. I wonder if that's true in your life. But not only is our new identity inseparably linked to the person of Jesus, it is also inseparably linked to the people of Jesus. Now don't leave linked to Jesus behind as we begin to talk about the people of Jesus. Because really the two go hand in hand. You really don't get one without the other. If you belong to Jesus, you belong to the people of Jesus and you can't belong to the people of Jesus unless you belong to Jesus. But notice how he goes from this focus on simply our relationship with Jesus to then how we relate to one another. He says, as you come to him, a living stone, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer acceptable spiritual sacrifices to God through Jesus Christ. Well, what are we to do with this? Well, first of all, it's awesome. Again, we see the link between us and Christ. What's true of Jesus gets to be true of us. He is a living stone. And guess what, believer? Guess what, Christian? You are a living stone as well. How, what did we say? It meant that Jesus was a living stone. It means that he has conquered death. He was rejected, but he is alive today. What does it does not mean that you and I are living stones? It means that we should die. We should be punished for our sins. But in fact, we've been made alive and we have the hope of everlasting life. And just as Jesus was raised from the dead, we have the confidence that one day we too will be raised from the dead. As Jesus was raised, so will we be as Christ is a living stone. So are we. We are living stones. But we are living stones. Plural. Together. It's not simply about your personal relationship with Jesus. What Peter is calling us to in our identity is he's calling us to see ourselves as linked to Jesus and to one another. We are not solo Christians. We are the church. And that's exactly what he's talking about here when he says that we're being built up as a spiritual house. We're Being built up as a spiritual house. This beautiful picture takes us back to the Old Testament. The, The house there was the temple. It was the house of God. It's a place where God's presence was able to dwell among people. There in that literal structure. Brick upon brick and stone upon stone. But now he says we are being built into a spiritual house. There is no brick and mortar structure that God's presence fills anymore. In fact, it is the lives of those he has called to be elect exiles. He fills us. And so we get to be the presence of God in this world as his Holy Spirit fills us. I'm afraid, though, that sometimes we want Jesus, but we don't want Jesus' as people. We want the benefits of eternal life with Jesus after we, after we die, but we don't want the responsibility and benefits, even though we often forget about the benefits of living in community with one another. Oh, I want, I want to be a part of this spiritual house, but you know what it means? If you're a living stone, you're being built into a spiritual house. It means you're touching other stones, right? You're not you're not being built into a house all by yourself. This this brick over here, this stone over here, the only way that stone gets to be a part of something greater and larger and more beautiful is to touch the other bricks, to be put together with those other stones. A Spartan king once boasted to a visiting monarch about the walls of Sparta. The visiting monarch, he looked around and he could see no walls. And so he said to the Spartan king, where are these walls about which you speak and boast so much? The Spartan king pointed at his bodyguard of magnificent Spartan troops. And he said, these are the walls of Sparta and every man of them a brick. I think the same is true of what Peter is saying here, except on a far greater scale. But together, as the people of God, we get to join together with one another to be something far greater and stronger and more useful to our king than we ever could separated from one another. Apart from one another, we're just a brick, just a stone. But together, we are God's temple and we can do together what God has called us to do. What has he called us to here? To be a holy priesthood. That means that we get to have a unique access to God as his people and we get to represent God in this world. And together we get to live through Christ. Notice then that he says that we offer spiritual sacrifices. What a priest did, a priest would go into the temple and offer a sacrifice. Only it wasn't simply a spiritual sacrifice. It was a physical sacrifice. It was literally an animal That was slain, but we don't have to do that anymore. Those aren't the sacrifices that we make because a once and for all sacrifice has been made. So what kind of sacrifice are we called to bring to God was a spiritual sacrifice. Literally, it is a life lived in obedience to him. We find this in Romans chapter 12, verse one. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Well, what does it mean to offer my body as a living sacrifice? Paul goes on in verse 2 of chapter 12 in Romans to say this. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. In other words, he's saying, don't live like the world. Live like who you are in Christ. Live holy and obedient lives. And that is your spiritual sacrifice. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 13 says something similar. He says, Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That simply means just to continually sing to God. Of course, singing is one way that we praise God, but notice how he describes the sacrifice of praise. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. That means we're willing to confess who God is. In verse 16, do not neglect to do good. And to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Notice how he links sacrifice to God with us living lives of obedience, us doing good to one another, us being the people he's called us to be. And so we do that together. We have access to God. We represent God. We offer up spiritual sacrifices as we live our lives in obedience to God. But notice it's only through Christ. We offer these sacrifices. We live in this way. And God is able to accept how we live only through Jesus. So we're right back to where we were that we are inescapably linked to one another, but ultimately to Jesus Christ. This is our identity in Him. But He's not done. Because he's going to turn the eyes of his readers to the Old Testament, to the Hebrew scriptures. And he is going to explain something very, very, very important. Perhaps you're sitting here today and you say, well, this is all good about the identity of someone who is a follower of Jesus. And we get to be joined to Jesus and joined to one another. But how does that happen? Is it just automatic in our lives like? Some people are and some people aren't. Or what if I don't think that I am joined to Jesus and joined to his people, but maybe I want to become joined to Jesus and joined to his people. Maybe my identity is found in the things of this world and the things of this life, but I want my identity to be found in Jesus. I I would rather be rejected on this earth and accepted for all of eternity with Christ. I want to be a part of this elect exile. So how does that happen Truth number three, our new identity is directly related to our response to Jesus. Our new identity is directly related to our response to Jesus. Peter goes in to quote some Old Testament passages. He's going to quote from Isaiah 28, Psalm 118, and refer to Isaiah chapter 8 in the next three verses. Verse six, he says this, for it stands in Scripture... Let me just pause right there and make a little aside. Notice Peter's view of the Bible. For it stands in Scripture. Scripture holds ultimate truth. And whatever Scripture says stands. And we can count on it. We can bank our lives on it. Peter says for it stands in Scripture. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Notice how he roots what he said in verse four in God's word from Isaiah. In verse four, he said that Jesus was rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. Where did he get that from? Well, he got it from Isaiah. Isaiah said, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And so it Peter is doing He's saying what Isaiah was writing about 700 years ago when he wrote about this cornerstone chosen and precious, he was writing about none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Behold, I am laying in Zion. First thing I want you to notice about verse six there is that Jesus is God's chosen way of salvation, Behold, God says, I am laying in Zion a stone. And it is a cornerstone chosen and precious. Why does that matter? Well, we live in a world where people, because of the wickedness in our hearts, like to make their own way. And we like to think that we know better than God. And so we like to come up with our own ways of salvation. But we can't run past the fact that God has chosen a way of salvation. He has laid the cornerstone. And we don't get to take that cornerstone up and replace it with another one. There is one cornerstone. There is one way of salvation, and that is Jesus Christ Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. As we'll see, that's offensive to people. People don't like to think that there is only one way. They don't want to believe that there's only one way. Why? Because we want to do things our way. We want to get to God our way. We think that we know what is best. There's already been a way of salvation. And it has been laid And it is Jesus. And unless we are built upon that cornerstone. What's the cornerstone do? It sets the trajectory for the rest of the building. Right? It sets the trajectory. It is the most important part of the foundation. The foundation being the most important part of the structure. And so if we remove that cornerstone, what happens is we're left with a building that will crumble. In the same way, if we try to get to God some way other than Jesus Christ and trusting in what he did on the cross, we are building up for ourselves a salvation that really is no salvation and that will crumble on the last day. God has laid his stone, his cornerstone, and it is Jesus Christ. In fact, in Isaiah chapter 28, we find this prophecy being a message of judgment on Ephraim for disobedience and unbelief. It's interesting In Isaiah 28 says that the people made a covenant with death. They made an agreement with death. In other words, they they had a way that they were going to escape. They had a way on their own that they were going to not suffer for their disobedience. They were not going to be punished by God. God says in Isaiah 28, I'm laying my stone, my cornerstone. The only way you're going to make an agreement with death is to do it my way. And that way is to believe in Jesus Christ, to believe in him as the cornerstone. We try to make all the agreements and all the plans and all the ways of escape from our sin and try to cover it up on our own that we won't. But there is only one way. So what do we do? What is to be our response? It's to believe. And whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. You see, in our minds, we would think that it would say, whoever serves Him, whoever lives for Him, Whoever cleans up their life and comes to Him will not be put to shame. But we can't do that. God in His sovereignty and in His grace and kindness towards us knows that any attempt that we make to gain salvation on our own will fall short of attaining the goal of everlasting life. And so... He has made a way so that all we have to do is to have faith, to believe in Jesus. Y'all, this is the good news of salvation. This is what the world desperately needs to hear. That however they've been trying to make up for the wrong that they've done, they can just stop that foolishness. They can stop that agreement with death that they have. And they can look to Christ and say, God, I have completely messed up. Have gone off track, have not lived for your glory. I've tried to do things my own way and I'm confessing that to you and I'm trusting in this cornerstone, I'm believing in this Jesus and I'm going to trust that what he did on the cross was enough to rescue me from my sin. And that when he rose up from the grave, he was promising that all who are linked to him will experience resurrection forever. So, God, I'm asking you to link me to Christ, to join me to Jesus, to make me a part of the spiritual house that is being built up stone upon stone upon the cornerstone. I don't deserve it, but I'm going to depend upon that cornerstone and I will rest upon him and I will trust that he is the straight and sure way and the house that is built on him will stand the test and the winds of your coming judgment I wonder today if you have believed in Jesus Christ alone for salvation I wonder today if your life is built upon Him. Or is it built upon someone or something else? Jesus is this cornerstone. It all centers upon Him. And when we believe in Him, we gain salvation. We will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe the honor is for you who believe the honor. Those who believe are honored. Not necessarily in this life, because the world is going to reject us. But we're going to be honored by the Lord with salvation. Remember, Peter already used this language back in chapter one, verse seven. He says that as our faith is tested through various trials He says that our faith is purified, that it may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, if we believe in Jesus, we may experience rejection now, but we get to experience honor for all of eternity. We get a seat at the table of the Lord. Peter linked this salvation in Acts chapter four. In Acts chapter four, back to Jesus, and he actually used this text as we're talking about Christ as the cornerstone to talk about that He is the only way of salvation, and that we can be saved through Him in Acts chapter four. Verse 10, he tells the people there in Jerusalem who arrested him. He says, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name given among men under heaven by which we must be saved. Jesus is the way of salvation and we must trust in him. But what happens if you don't notice that it says, but for those who do not believe. For those who do not believe. Friends, there are those who do not believe. Maybe you're one of those. Maybe, you know, one of those. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word. Again, this. Lack of belief is connected with disobeying the word, and the word in chapter one, verse twenty-five, is the good news that was preached to you. The obedience of faith is that Peter has been talking about is contrasted with those who disobey the word, which means they haven't repented of sin. They haven't trusted in the in the gospel claims, these truth claims of Christ that He is the way and the truth and the life. And so, what is the result for them? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble over this cornerstone as Peter quotes from Psalm chapter 118 there that Psalm describes the return of the king to the temple to give thanks after his victory over his enemies, which is good news if you belong to the king who won the battle, but it's bad news if you're on the side that lost and those who stumble over the cornerstone belong to the side that lost the battle that will lose the battle we are his enemies if we haven't trusted in the cornerstone Matthew chapter 21 Jesus provides a sobering account of those who reject He says this here another parable there was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the servants for fruit drew season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one another, killed one another and stoned one another. Then he sent other servants more than the first and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Jesus sets up this story, this analogy. The religious leaders of his day. They had killed the prophets who came before that God had sent and ultimately they killed the son. Jesus was foreshadowing what they were going to do to him. And then he asked them this question. He says, when therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? What's he going to do with the ones who rejected his son? And they answered the question. They said he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. And then Jesus said this. Have you never read the Scriptures? Have you never read the Scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And this was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. He was warning them. You're going to reject me. And you know what happens to those who reject me? They are cast out of my presence forever. He finishes that passage this way. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. You see, here's the truth. God has laid Jesus in our path. If you didn't realize that, realize it today. Right now, God is laying Jesus in your path. And either we build our lives on him or we stumble over him. Either we depend upon him or we reject him. Either we see him as precious as God sees him or we reject him and see him as offensive like the world sees him. And then either we are honored by him Or we are crushed by Him. Either we live forever or we die forever. So what do we do with Jesus? What will you do with Jesus? Our identity is directly related to our response. Do you want to be identified with God's people? Do you want to be identified with those who, while rejected temporarily in this world, get to be chosen and precious, honored, without shame for all of eternity? Then you must trust in Jesus. Fourth truth, and this is I'm going to say this quickly because Peter says it quickly, it's almost in passing that he says this. He says they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. He almost says it in passing, but he doesn't pass over an opportunity to root all of this in the sovereignty of God. Our new identity, whilst directly related to our response to Jesus, it's also directly related to God's choice through Jesus. Our new identity is directly related to God's choice through Jesus. In other words, behind our response to Jesus is God's sovereign plan. Whether that's rejecting Him or believing in Him. It's an interesting phrase. It's a difficult phrase. It's hard to wrap our minds around it, but it is there. They stumble because they disobey the Word. They reject Jesus as they were destined to do. I don't think we'll comprehend all of God's sovereignty. I know we won't because we are not God. Just note that God is sovereign over both belief and rejection. We've already seen that He's sovereign over our belief. We are elect exiles. According to the foreknowledge of God in chapter 1, verse 2, we are elect exiles. And He's going to say in verse 9 that you are a chosen race. Part of God's choosing, but even the punishment of the wicked is a part of his sovereign plan. Lamentations chapter 3 verse 38 says this is not. Is it not from the mouth of the most high that both calamities and good things come? Amos chapter 3 verse 6 says when a trumpet sounds in a city, do not the people tremble? When disaster comes to a city, has not the Lord caused it? And Isaiah chapter 45 verse 7 says, I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. Now, God's sovereignty never removes responsibility from humans. He still holds humans accountable for their actions. But he is sovereign over all. Why would Peter say this? Why would Peter throw that little phrase there, there at the end? Verse 8. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Remember, these elect exiles are being Persecuted by the ones who are stumbling over the cornerstone. It's really hard to keep our confidence in Jesus. It's really hard to keep our lives built upon Christ. It's really hard to continually come to Jesus when ones who are rejecting Jesus are persecuting us. It's easy to say, oh, it would be so much easier just to walk away from Christ and then I wouldn't have to experience the persecution. Where are you, God, in all of this? And there, over it all, God is saying, don't worry. It's all part of my plan. Don't worry, Christian. You can have confidence in your salvation because I'm sovereign over it. And you can have confidence that this suffering that you're experiencing at the hands of those who reject me is temporary because I am sovereign over it. I am sovereign over the good and the evil. And so we can trust that God will one day set all things right. And he will punish the wicked Our identity is in Christ. Mine is. And I hope and pray that yours is. Who are you? Where is your identity? Perhaps today, you need to come to Christ for the first time. Realizing that He came for you. While you were still a sinner, and he died for you. And you just need to know that it's simple belief. You need to trust in Christ, and you get to be a part of the spiritual house that God is building. Is that you today? Would you stop stumbling over the cornerstone? You don't have to keep stumbling. Perhaps you're here today and you have trusted Christ. Your life is built on the cornerstone, but you know people who are stumbling over the cornerstone. Are you telling them that what they're stumbling over is actually what they need to build their lives upon? Have you told them, Christian, that the one that they are rejecting is the only one who can provide them with salvation and everlasting life? Maybe it's a father or a mother, a brother or a sister, maybe it's a son or a daughter or maybe it's a neighbor, maybe it's a coworker, maybe it's a friend. Are we just going to let them keep stumbling? Or are we going to tell them that they can choose to believe in Christ and be rescued? Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for who you are and for what you've done, and we ask that You would help us to center our lives upon Jesus Christ and Him alone. Lord, we, we need Christ in our lives each and every day. We thank You that our identity is found in Him and that we get to live as Christians together with one another. We thank You that You are willing to save us simply through our faith in Jesus. And at the same time, we thank You that You are sovereign over it all. It gives us great confidence in You. It gives us great confidence in our salvation. It gives us us great confidence that one day You will set all things right. Father, thank You that Jesus Christ is our cornerstone. Help us to build our lives upon Him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.